Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bob Moore. He's a managing director with Alta Partners, a healthcare-focused venture capital firm. Moore got started as a young pup in biotech when the industry was just getting going in the 1980s. He moved between big companies and small companies. He then advanced to a couple well-known healthcare VC firms, Domain Associates and Fraser Healthcare Partners. Before joining Alta, he worked with the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation on its equity investing strategy and continues to advise the foundation part-time. We talked here about some of his formative experiences in biotech, lessons learned, and about some timely areas of investment as we enter a new year. Moore has an unusual perspective shaped by this smorgasbord of experiences. He's a keen observer of people and trends. I think you'll enjoy this perspective. Now, before we get started, a couple things. Thanks to the sponsors. The Biotech Showcase, co-organized by EBD Group, is coming up January 8 to 10 in San Francisco. Listeners of this podcast can get a $200 discount when registering. Just type in long run, all one word, as the registration code when you get your pass for the Biotech Showcase. Also, have you heard of Presage Biosciences? This company has a micro-injector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor. It's being tested now in a clinical trial. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Lastly, are you resolving to get in shape in the new year? I'm torturing myself to get in the best shape of my life before climbing Mount Everest this spring. And the folks at Elite Fitness Training on East Lake Avenue in Seattle are helping me with personal training. Listeners of this show are invited to take a 10% discount at Elite Fitness on a custom plan to help you reach your fitness goal. Just email owner Dave Johnson at dave at elitefitnessnw.com to set up an initial consult. These guys aren't cheap, but their training is worth every penny to me. Tell Dave I said so. Now, join me and Bob Moore for the long run. Welcome, Bob. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, Bob, you're the first venture capitalist that I've had on this show. This is an area that uh, is shrouded in a lot of mystery for entrepreneurs. It's not uh, all that well understood by the wider world. Maybe we could just start by telling me a little bit about who you are and how you got into this business. So, it's hard to start any conversation with me being a venture capitalist without saying my mother was also a venture capitalist and she was at a firm called Oak back in the 1970s through 2000 period. And she invested in tech and biotech and a lot of different sectors um, and had notable investments in things like Genzyme and compact computers and it's big shoes to fill. But her advice was to stay out of venture capital. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But before we get there, uh, so where were you born and raised? So I was born in Tonopah, Nevada on an Air Force base. Moved around a lot throughout my childhood, was Otis Air Force Base, and then moved to New Hampshire, subsequently Connecticut, Vermont, and um, since college in Vermont, been all over as well, a lot in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, 
Colorado, Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego. So you've seen a lot. Your mom was in venture capital in a very exciting kind of pioneer days time in biotech. So is she the one who got you interested in this career? What I would say is from an early age, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I did, I was privileged to get to talk to a lot of people and hear from doctors, you know, what they thought the future of doctoring was going to be uh, from researchers and scientists. And I was fascinated with biotech from a very, you know, high school got me into biotech. I really liked what was happening. It was early days. It was, I was in high school in the early 80s. Things were happening. It was fun. There, it was a whole new industry. And it sort of looked like the future at that point. So I spent a couple of summers working for the founder of Genzyme, a guy named Sherry Snyder, who became a, a terrific mentor of mine. And he was an entrepreneur. And Sherry really set the stage for a lot of my career and giving me advice on what I should do to build skills to be able to start a biotech company. Now, what years are we talking here at Genzyme? So he was the startup guy prior to Henry coming in. Henry um, Tremier. So Henry Tremier was brought in as CEO after four or five years. Um, Sherry was a was an entrepreneur. I mean, he was a tennis player. He played on at Wimbledon, and he formed the you know United States Junior Tennis League with Arthur Ashe. He was just a an entrepreneur in every sense of the word, and he was charismatic, amazing human being, and sort of did anything to get companies started. He was successful in a lot of different industries. Biotech was new. Um, they were putting it together. He started an enzyme business that was Genzyme originally before it had success with Gaucher's. But um, certainly it was started. And the the heart of the start was um, uh, Henry Blair and Sherry Snyder. And then a few years later, Henry Tremere came in and made it the large company it was. So this is where you caught the bug for the business. It really was actually spending summers with Sherry, not at Genzyme. This was post his Genzyme career in starting things up was where I caught. I spent the first summer in a lab where I thought I was going to be in research. And then the second summer helping him try to start some companies. And um, it was fascinating. It was great. And I will say that Sherry was an entrepreneur and valued entrepreneurs. Didn't I don't want to say didn't care for venture capitalists. They were necessary evil. But I think Sherry, it's safe to say Sherry would have preferred me choose a career as an entrepreneur and startup CEO. Uh-huh. Um, so how did you end up turning to this darker side? It was without intent, to be honest with you. I took a lot of career advice from people early on, um, Sherry being one of them, but a lot of terrific folks, you know, advised me on things that I would need to build skill sets to be successful in biotech. And one of them was startup experience. And I did out of college, I went to a company called Somatogen and was probably 10th or 15th employee at Somatogen. We were really lucky. We were doing recombinant hemoglobin. We had um, uh, George Rathman and Bob Swanson on our board. So it was just a terrific, I mean, it was a very small world back then and very few people. Um, so you got to absorb a lot of things from people that were pioneering and doing interesting stuff. So you'd meet these guys, Rathman, Swanson? Do you know, they were incredibly gracious with their time uh, that yes and spent time with them and they were they were terrific um, they really were they I, I don't think I think there's a suspicion that people don't want to give their time or, or and I think it's completely 
the opposite. If you're young, enthusiastic, and you show that you genuinely want to learn about something, I think people really give back. And and um, when I moved to Seattle a few years later with Pharmacia, uh, George and Joy would have me over to their house or to their club for breakfast once every couple months. And um, George was just amazing at sharing you know, what he had experienced over his career. Now, for those not familiar, George Rathman was the founding CEO of Amgen. And in the early 90s, he was in Seattle at a company called Icos. Yes. Um, and he had just started Icos and Jan LeCoque was the CFO and George. And it was, a, you know, there, it was an exciting startup and it was very well funded because it was, you know, George coming from um, his experience at Amgen and he was backed by Bill Gates. And so Icos was a, pretty high profile startup. What were you doing at Pharmacia? I was in sales, which was actually Sherry Snyder's sort of command. He said, you learn everything in this business by working in sales and carrying a bag. And if you go carry a bag for a few years, it'll, you you know, you'll learn the industry and you'll benefit from it. Also, frankly, I was pretty introverted at the time. And um, the torture of going into a sales role was torture. Um, But probably the best three years of experience I had. So you went from a small company to a big company and then into sales. So now you're interacting with doctors, busy, so I, busy people. So it wasn't so much doctors. I was actually on the pharmacy of biotech side of things. So I was selling um, separations, equipment, protein purification, all the manufacturing, all the research reagents and things like that. So my customers were a mix of academia, University of Washington, OHSU, and um, and it, but it was knocking on doors. It was chasing physicians or PhDs around. Uh, it was a lot of rejection, and it was an incredible experience. And it sort of taught me a lot about business, interacting with customers, uh, overcoming objections, figuring out how to sort out, get stuff done. It was it was great. And um, also, I think one thing that sales does in this business is that at the end of the day. This industry, the pharmaceutical industry, has been a sales-based business for a long time. And understanding the dynamics of interacting, it's gotten more complex. It's now not just doctors. It's interacting with formularies and payers and, uh, you know, all the different side of things. But um, I think it was, seemed like I was checking a box. But to be honest with you, it's probably the biggest growth phase of my development. It forced you to understand what problem you're really solving or whose problem, what, what their problems are. Yeah, it was, it was a connection between, you know, how do I help, you know, and that was, I wasn't a good sales pushy sales rep. It just wasn't my personality. So I had to get in and know the customer and know their problem to try and help them solve what they were trying to do. And I had been, you know, very fortunate to be at Somatogen when we were doing, you know, very large scale purification. And as the biotech companies were coming up the scale, companies like at the time, Cellpro, um, Immunex, Icos, you know, a lot of companies up here in Seattle. And Seattle was a hotbed and still remains a hotbed. Um, I got to work with, you know, Dave Vetterline at Icos doing purification. I, it was, and I was serving them. I was helping them out wherever I could. But um, as a result of that, that was kind of the sales process. Not a scientist, not a doctor, but learning the business from the ground up. Definitely not a scientist, definitely not a doctor. And um, I, I would say the one thing I am is curious and I like to figure stuff out. So it was a lot of fun, actually. And and what I would say at Somatogen is I was never really afraid. I was the least qualified person in the room at every step of the way. 
but we were doing new stuff. So every time something that hadn't been done before needed to be done, um, I wasn't hesitant to try it. And at, if you try it a few times and you're successful at it, all of a sudden you're the expert at it, which was great. Well, this is one thing that I, uh, I recommend to uh, young people, uh, young reporters, actually. Uh, don't be afraid to ask a dumb question. I can remember that feeling when I was just getting started covering biotech and being totally overwhelmed. Like, where do I even begin? I don't know the jargon, the terminology people are using. Uh, I, I don't want to look stupid to these people. But, you know, as I got more experienced, I realized everybody feels a little uncomfortable and you just got to ask it. And people actually appreciate when you make that effort, that sincere effort to understand what it is they're talking about. They'll help you. I, I think that's genuine. I mean, biotech is a complex business. There's science. There's deep science sometimes, and people are very deep in their little niche. And frankly, it's probably interesting for them to be able to talk to somebody who's genuinely interested in what they're doing. So um, it's not like you can talk recombinant DNA in the 80s at a lot of cocktail parties. Um, so, you know, frankly, if, you, if you're interested and you're curious, um, this business, even being a sales rep, you know, people would tell me all about their research. And I, I was curious to listen. So you you absorb it over time. Um, it's a little bit of pattern recognition. It's a little bit of just being genuinely interested in what they're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you get some um, operating experience inside companies. Uh, how does this lead to venture capital? So Sherry had said, I should do three things. I should go do a startup. I should go get some sales experience. He said, go carry a bag. And um, I, I think I got very lucky. Somatogen was a rocket ship of a company. The blood supply was, you know, dangerous, deemed dangerous at the time with HIV and hepatitis C. So everybody is interested in a blood substitute. It didn't work out, frankly. It was a very hard project to scale. We're talking about dose sizes of 25 grams. So it was going to be, it was just a very difficult task. Um, but it was a rocket ship of a company. I uh, went public and then was sold to Baxter. And it was all in the course of a very short period. Um, so I got a lot of experience. And, and it was a small um, team it, it, at the outset. So it was really great. Um, the sales experience was exactly what it was. It was tough. Um, but, you know, you sort of grind it out every day. And then from there, I went to business school. And that was the third thing Sherry said. Go do these three things and you'll you'll have some qualifications to be able to talk to people. And and I, I viewed business school, frankly, at the time as just checking a box. Um, somebody once said I would spend the rest of my career either explaining why I didn't go to business school or going to business school, so just get it over with. Uh, and I went back to Darden at the University of Virginia because that's where Sherry was. And I spent some time working with him. And, and then the summer between years, I actually spent with a, a seed venture capitalist named Jeff Brook, who was incredibly generous with his time and his sharing um, and involving me in things that he was doing. And he and I remain very close to, to today. So it's, it's been great. Building, I'd say that one of the things you said is being curious and interacting with people and asking dumb questions. But I also think a lot of your career is um, building and maintaining really solid relationships with high quality people. And if you can do that and just um, add value every time you're in a relationship with somebody and genuinely care about them and their interactions, I think that comes back tenfold. It's, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and it actually makes the whole career worthwhile. Yeah, it's uh, sort of 
it's unlike transactional, or I guess that's a term people use, like when they're just like trying to do a deal and you don't really get to know the person and it's sort of like you forget about it. Um, that That's not how I operate. I don't quite get it. Um, but you're the kind of person that builds these long-term relationships, shows genuine interest in the people you're dealing with, and then doors start, start opening. Well, later on, right? Like you mentioned George Rathman. Uh, you, you get to know him when you're starting out in your career. Um, that, that um, you know, that, that opens doors. You know, it's funny. I never saw it so much. And certainly I was fortunate and got to meet a lot of people and got to talk about venture capital around the dinner table when I was young. So all these interesting, and I was curious. I was curious about all sorts of things. Um and I, but I really believed in biotech and I believed it would change things. And I thought it was a very powerful, um, powerful technology that was going to lead to a lot of uh, solutions for big diseases. So that was enough. And I was excited about it. But I was never the person that I thought had the good idea or was technically capable or could run anything. Uh, and I probably could run something, but I, I always thought that if there was a company that was a great idea. It deserved the best CEO and management team it could get. And I was never the best management team or CEO they could get. So I, I think I fell into the role of venture capitalist by default. And I came out of business school um, determined to still at that point thinking I wanted to be a biotech entrepreneur. Um, and I um, was fortunate to get a Kaufman Fellowship, um, spent uh, about a year with Domain Associates in their Princeton office before uh, Jim Blair started a company and put me in as COO to help run the company for a couple of years. Um, and the when I started at Domain, their, their, their opening thing was, you'll, you'll never be a partner here. We'd like to give you a good two-year experience and then find you a job somewhere else or go start a company. And so um, Jim started a company. I went in as COO, ran it with the CEO for a little while. Um, it was a tough experience. It was a drug discovery company. Not everything was going great. We ended up selling the company after a pretty short period of time, uh, three years in total. And then I thought on to my next job and I thought I'd be going somewhere else. And Jim said, we just invested a lot of time and effort into your coming back to domain. Hmm. Now, what years are we talking here? That the must have been ninety eight, ninety nine, somewhere in that range. Okay, so this is actually a time when biotech is on the upswing. Funding is up. Um, companies are going public. The genomics wave is on. It, a lot of hype. It it was, um, and it was an interesting time. And I think that the rule in biotech is that the pendulum swings and there's going to be really interesting times where you can raise a lot of money. Um, I think that, that time was particularly interesting because there was the whole genomics hype. And so things leading into 2000 were, you know, there were companies that were in a land grab mentality around the human genome, uh, which turned out really not to be true. But there were companies that raised a whole heck of a lot of money and then turned around and became product companies by acquiring products and were successful on that. And I, th I think that that sort of reinforced to me that th this business is about investing in people. And um, it sounds trite 
and you hear it all the time. And I heard it all the time from my mother, Jim Blair, um, many of my mentors, Pat Clorty, others, other folks in this business, that this is about investing in people. And um, I can't say it enough. It's about building trusted relationships with great people that want to solve big problems and then spending your time making sure your investors are aligned with their success. Now, why do you think that is? Why, why are the people so important? Because, I, I mean, I got, I got to imagine that as VC, you think about all kinds of risk. Risk in lots of different dimensions. There's the technology risk. Maybe this thing that uh, just doesn't really work very well. Or um, there's, um, uh, there's macro risk, like, you know, nuclear weapons could come from North Korea, right? <laughs> um, there's uh, syndicate risk, like your venture capital partners around the table might shift strategy, or maybe that partner you trust takes another job and they won't be there for the B and the C rounds. Uh, then there's management risk, like maybe these, the, the executive team that you're betting on is not capable or corrupt or something else, right? Uh, so... But why does it come? Why is that management risk, the the management piece of the equation, so crucial? Well, first of all, I think most of those things are out of your control. So it simply, you know, whether we launch nuclear weapons or not is kind of irrelevant to my investment thesis because I just have to assume if that happens, that's bad, <laughs> and it's bad for everybody. Um, so, so there are things like that. But what is really in your control is um, working with great people. And you are not, no, no matter what anybody says, as a venture capitalist, we are service providers. And we are, we are trying to help great entrepreneurs um, achieve what they want to achieve. They're making the decisions. We're in the backseat at best. Um, and so th those that think they're um, driving, you know, creating the company. It's just a false reality. And um, we don't control things. And so I, I think one of the things that happened, uh, Jim Blair had me do an analysis when I was at Domain about of the companies, and we picked something arbitrary, you know, to define success of the companies that returned two times our investment. And so we, it was an arbitrary cutoff. But if you made more than two times in your investment, that was considered a success. If you made less, that was a failure. Of the companies that were successful, 70% of them weren't working on anything that was in their original business plan. And of the companies that failed, they pretty much stuck to what was in their original business plan. So what it told me is that you're betting on a team, maybe in a particular area, maybe. But what all we want to do is surround them with the best talent, resources, access to information, relationships, whatever that might take to help make them successful. And, and frankly, being a CEO, um, it uh, seems glamorous, seems terrific, it seems awesome. I think it's the loneliest job on the planet. I think it's very difficult. Um, and I think it takes a very special um, person to do that in a, in a truly serve the company, serve the board, serve the shareholders sort of way, that they're fighting for what's right for the company. And, um, and those folks are they are the thing that is in short supply. It's not money. It's not ideas. It's great entrepreneurs. Glad you mentioned the money because, you know, here we are at the end of 2017 and there's been um, another big 
upswing in funding. Um, lots of different names of venture capital firms pouring into the industry, people saying that they're they're interested in this exciting stuff going on with CRISPR and you know immunotherapy and all kinds of, of things that you and I follow every day. Um, is there too much money co- coming into the sector? Is there such well, is there such a thing as too much money? I think there's a discipline to being um, resource limited. So you're, you're forced to make hard decisions. So I think that that is fundamental. I also don't think you want to waste money. You want to be efficient with your use of capital. Um, you also want to be efficient with your use of time. Those are those are the limited resources. Um, on on a once you're in an investment sort of thing. So I mean management's time, and I mean the resources that management is spending. So I think having too many distractions and trying to pursue too many things, I think too much money encourages that and it uh, pulls away from the discipline. Um, with that said, there are a lot of different ways to succeed and fail in this business. And I've done, you know, certainly there are patterns that you see. Um, medical device investing as, as a general rule, it's incredibly patent dependent and it's incredibly focused on capital efficiency um, because medical device companies generally don't sell for a billion dollars plus or go public for, there's exceptions, but in general, it's a very, they have to be capital constrained, they have to be efficient and they have to get to market pretty quickly and efficiently. Um, Biotech, there's a lot of different models for success. And I think, um, I think government policy, reimbursement policy, um, all of those things dictate a little bit where we're going. Um, you mentioned uh, immuno-oncology. I think immuno-oncology is amazing. I mean, I, th- I think it's fantastic, but I, I think immunology is what I'm really interested in that. And it's amazing what companies like Kite and Juno and you know, there's a number of, now there's 140 or so CAR-Ts out there. Um, it's spurred innovation. But from my perspective, it's spurred innovation in understanding biology and immunology, and that's going to be applicable to a lot of different things, um, including, you know, infectious disease. And Veer's a company we're in that is, you know, the thesis there is everybody's chasing immuno-oncology. Let's take those same tools and apply them to infectious disease. Biotech Showcase is coming up January 8 to 10 in San Francisco's Union Square. Listeners of this show are welcome to take a $200 discount off registration. Just type in long run, all one word, as the registration code when you're checking out. Thanks to EBD Group, the co-organizer of the Biotech Showcase, for sponsoring the long run. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This device enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Let, let's come back to yeah, uh, some sure. of the interesting areas of science and technology. But right now, I mean, you're at Alta Partners. And I'm Alta, tell us a little bit about where that stands. Uh, because as I understand it, like there was a period where the fund kind of went into a holding pattern or uh, it, it hadn't raised a new one. Like a lot of venture capital funds coming out of the financial crisis, there, there wasn't a whole lot of, of money raining down from the sky. 
for biotech venture capital that changed, say, you know, 13, 14, 15. How, how much money do you guys have and, and what are you putting it to work on? So can't comment too much on Alta as a, as a what we're doing in fundraising and things like that. But what I can say, we've we've got a fund. We are investing in curative therapeutics and technology-enabled services, and that is different from the historical Alta. Um, and Alta was originally a spin out of Berg and Deliage, uh, Jean Deliage. They built a, a terrific firm, um, and they were very successful over a long period of time. But I think it went into a bit of a uh, not wind down mode, but people were, it was a tough fundraising environment. They were very judicious with their allocation of capital. And I give um, the folks at Alta great credit that they've done very well for their LPs. And that's incredible. And they've been involved in companies like Kite, like Asperion. Um, but those took, you know, it was a bit of a nuclear winter there for a long time. And it took a long time. And I think um, they stuck to their knitting and making sure they delivered for their LPs and didn't go out and raise a new fund for a long time for that reason. There's also the unfortunate passing of Jean. And I, I think there's a little bit that where venture firms really are cemented around their founder or leaders to a certain extent. So um, there have been a lot of different success stories out of Alta, including, you know, Robert Alexander and Adam Tomasi leaving the firm to go off and do ZS now working on a company called Alicos. Um, they've been very successful entrepreneurs and that's a terrific outcome as well. So this, um, in this, um, we're pretty excited about the future. We're investing in things, and but we're, we're focused in a discipline on things that are curative uh, because we think that paradigm shift is really important. And Savaldi has shown what, what an incredible, you know, there are pricing discussions on these drugs, obviously, and we can get into that. But I am such a fan of drugs as a cure for diseases. And I think that we can talk about the sticker price, but over the course of time, investing innovation in innovation and getting drugs that are new classes of drugs and, and curing diseases is going to be very cost effective in the long run for the system. Well, Savaldi is a good example. The the new kite, now Gilead drug, Yescarta is a good example. Um, curative therapies. Uh, we we, I mean, in your early part of your career, I mean, we didn't see things like this, you know, every year. No, and it's it's um, we're learning all the time, and I I actually think there's a perverse. Um, business model, which people would refer to as it's nice for pharma, you know, people, I, I think people in pharma and biotech are generally in there for the right reasons. There's going to be bad actors in any category. Um, but I, we want to cure people. We want to alleviate disease. You'd love to prevent it. That would be better. So I'd love to be on the prevention side. Uh, it's very difficult. We're restricted to what people are willing to pay for um, to a certain extent. You try and break the mold. But I, I think that these are paradigm shifting for the healthcare system. And I think it sounds like a lot of money. Um, but to be honest with you, with patent lives and things, these these drugs will be functionally um, very inexpensive 15, 20 years from now and be around for generations. So I think it's an investment. I think the dynamics of this system, of this system right now are um, 90% of Prescriptions are for generic drugs. Um, really, pricing pressure 
everywhere has been difficult on new drugs. And that's a terrific dynamic to have for patients. And I, I think it should be, but I, I want to continue to invest in innovation and getting paid for highly risky investment in innovation is important or it stops that. And that damages humanity for you know a long time to come. I want to pick up on a couple of threads that you're talking about really cost effectiveness of health interventions, um, but and, and immunology and and you know impact on humanity. That this brings up the, the the Gates Foundation experience. Now you still have a, a relationship there, correct? I'm an advisor to the Gates Foundation. Uh huh. Uh huh. So what does what are you doing there? Um, the program related investment group at the Gates Foundation looks to invest in companies or work with uh, industry in ways that um, where there's an alignment between the foundation's goals and industry's goals. And so there are drug discovery technologies out there that we're using to apply to cancer or autoimmune disease or whatever it might be. And they may have application to the Gates efforts in malaria, HIV, TB, and other diseases. So where there is the potential for alignment, um, they would make a program-related investment into a into an entity, into a, a company, and get program support for that. Um, they don't invest in cancer. They don't invest in a lot of things. But I think the most important thing for the Gates Foundation is to get the best and the brightest interested in working on the problems they're trying to solve. And I think this industry... I mean, I think that's the ultimate goal of an industry is to get the best and the brightest working on their biggest problems. And that's shared with the Gates Foundation. And they have a, an amazing program of granting to great researchers throughout academia and working with companies. But I think working with entrepreneurial companies is a little bit different. And I alluded to the distraction factor early. If you have too many things you're working on, it it lacks focus. So a number of these companies, Affinovax, Atreka, others, they're working on things that are applicable to the Gates mission. They may be applicable to other diseases as well. And they're trying to work out how to work best with other venture capitalists, industry, entrepreneurs to get their programs pushed forward. Mm-hmm. Veer is another example. And Veer is a terrific example and wouldn't have happened but for the Gates Foundation. Um, they're, the Technology out of OHSU, um, Lewis Picker, Klaus Fruh, they were doing great work. Um, it was funded by DARPA and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, but it really wasn't going anywhere in a um, biotech sense, a drug development sense. Um, it, was, it was an academic exercise and there's a small team around it, um, but it's deserving of a really high world-class team. And I think the technology is amazing. And um, working with the Gates Foundation, Alta, Arch, uh, being able to put together a syndicate and bring together a lot of different technologies to create a world-class infectious disease company um, led by George Skangos, Vicky Sato. It's a privilege and it's amazing to see them transform that and push things forward um, in in a commercial productive way. So this is bringing together certain threads. There's been tremendous advancement in um, enabling technologies, sequencing being one big one. Um, immunology has come 
tr- made tremendous strides. And, and so then it becomes the VC's job to say, all right, we, we see an, uh, an opportunity here. We need to get that management team um, mobilized around I, it. I think we saw a lot. I, I think, and Bob Nelson and I talked a lot about this at the outset, infectious disease. It's, um, it's something that big pharma and a little bit of biotech has moved away from because it's a tough reimbursement model in some ways. Um, but in the last 10 years, immunology has come so far and a lot of technologies like um, RNA, uh, whatever it might be, the number of different things Vera will be working on, but they've come a long way, but haven't had the focus that immuno-oncology has had or the, you know, the interest. And so bringing together a lot of different assets and technologies to bear on solving infectious disease, I think is um, very valuable. And, and it's, it's, it's terrific from the foundation standpoint, but I'm, I'm not doing this for a noble cause. I'm doing this um, to make money for our LPs and to build a great company and solve disease in patients that need it. And that includes the developing world. And, and that's terrific. And I admire the Gates Foundation and the mission of the Gates Foundation a great deal. Um, and I'd love to see them working with the best and the brightest and the best minds in, in biotech. When you look at the reimbursement environment out there in the U.S. and, and in other countries, I mean, this is, this is a perennial uh, source of tension in, in what this industry does. It's co- creating lots and lots of uh, exciting new drugs, diagnostics. Um, they all need to be paid for somehow by somebody. And um, our, our society's willingness to foot the bill for a lot of these things is um, shaky, um, I'd say. Uh, how? Uh, but when you allude to some of the things happening in immunology, I mean, even in sort of the most extreme critic world, like say Zeke Emanuel land, even Zeke Emanuel would say, uh, preventive vaccines, like, you know, for measles, mumps, rubella, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those things are cost-effective health interventions. So is this the kind of thing, like, when you look further down the road, that um, <laughs> do, thinking about, okay, I mean, even from the early days of a company's founding, uh, is this the kind of thing that people will pay for uh, at a certain level, like, even in a more nuclear winter type of reimbursement environment? I think our job is to demonstrate value. And I I think the politics of reimbursement are complex. And um, there's certainly a lot of politicking that goes on around that. And there should be a free market for these things. Um, And and I I welcome the pushback. We We should be delivering better drugs at lower cost over time. I mean, that should be the trend. We've got better technologies. That said, getting drugs to approval is still very difficult. We didn't, we didn't have all the, you know, we have a lot of technology now to develop drugs. We also have to answer a lot of questions that we never used to have to answer with the FDA because we just weren't aware, nor was the FDA aware of those questions. So I think it gets more and more complex and complexity involves cost. But I think from a reimbursement standpoint, some of these are political issues of where is value and how do we as humanity or governments or whatever it might be um, value different segments of the population. 
Uh, the U.S. healthcare system is terrific for the wealthy, and it's um, not as terrific for those that aren't or aren't insured. Um, so that doesn't seem particularly fair to me. I mean, we are the wealthiest country in the world. I feel like we should do better uh, overall. And I feel like we also are in a leadership position. If you're going to be a leader, I think we should be um, helping others. And, and we're certainly doing that in a lot of ways. Um, but there are a lot of diseases that are preventable. There are a lot of diseases that are easily curable and patients aren't getting those. And, and groups like the Gates Foundation, IAVI, Gavi, you know, a lot of folks out there are trying to solve that. Um, I'd love to see that solved by commercial interests. And I'm sure they would as well. I, it, you know, having a drug distribution system throughout sub-Saharan Africa would be terrific. Having better medical services and better delivery um, in India, whatever it may be, um, those are laudable goals. But I, I'd, I'd rather see them served by business, frankly, than um and there's a charitable need to get some of these going, but I'd rather them serve by business. And if you get a flywheel of business going where you're serving customers and you're doing it at a profit, um, I think your tendency is to show that capitalism works in those things. Um, capitalism needs to be checked. You can't have unchecked capitalism, but um, we can make better decisions that way. And I think as a society, we can make better decisions than the politics we've been making recently. It's still a very messy and cyclical business. This, when you deal with this much scientific and technology uncertainty, um, it, I, I think it kind of naturally follows. <clears throat> so, for example, I mean, over the course of your career, I mean, you've seen phases when uh, lots of money flowed to genomics or lots of money would flow to diabetes drug discovery or, you know, big primary care indications um, and then that went away for various reasons. And now immuno-oncology and rare disease are on the upswing. And people are saying, well, where's the entrepreneurship and the, the venture capital for, you know, these big primary care, great big needs? Uh, it's just inherent to the system. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of, you know, at the end of the day, my investors pay me to make a return. And, and um I think we are going to do that by investing in great entrepreneurs, solving big problems, but they have to be reimbursed. I mean, th this is a business and it, they have to be businesses and um, people tend to go and it's very logical um, with a risk adjusted rate of return. And, you know, specialty pharma throughout the 1990s and early 2000s was a very logical place for venture capitalists to go because the incentives there were you could change something from three times a day to twice a day and get a new patent extension for it. It was low risk, yeah. potentially high return. Um, we don't set the rules of the system, but we're trying to play by the rules. And if that is that obvious, it, it unfortunately, it, it provides incentive to invest in what I would call not the most important areas for well, the long term. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, in this high risk, supposedly high reward business, if you look at the returns on biotech venture capital over time, I mean, you're better off just putting the money in a standard and poor's 500 index fund. 
I think that that is also true about venture capital in general, by the way. Um, so I, I think one of the dirty secrets of venture capital is that it's actually not a terrific asset class. The top quartile of venture capitalists are a terrific a- asset class and they tend to, the top quartile tends to stick in the top quartile. So the firms that you hear of that are doing well tend to keep doing well in general. There are um, fir- there are individuals and there's firms that implode or lose people over time, whatever it might be. But in general, brand does matter in this industry. And the people that are staying in the top quartile are providing great returns for their investors. Um, but I think in tech, healthcare, all all the different sectors of venture capital, I don't think most venture capital firms provide a terrific return to their investors. The ones that do often are off the charts. So that's that's what the LPs are looking for. And oftentimes a lot of the individual partners, I mean, we hear this uh, sometimes maybe glibly said in public, you know, Vinod Kosla famously made the remark that, you know, maybe just a tiny, tiny fraction of venture capitalists actually add value to their portfolio investments. And something like 80% of them are actually adding negative value, like with bad advice or meddling. <laughs> um, and so like, there's, I mean, there's just, a, and this is the stuff you hear entrepreneurs complain about a lot. Um, well, I, th- I think that's true. L- the things our industry is guilty of, just uh, go down a list of things. We are, we are a, historically a cottage industry based on rules that were put together back in the 1970s. And when funds were small and, um, and, and, you know, the, the management fee versus carry issues were, were different. And I think, um, unfortunately, that hasn't changed as much as it needs to change. And people tend to go by the standard operating agreements. I think it's um, the fee not and carry. The fee and carry that we're talking about here is the old two and twenty. Two and twenty for and, venture capitalists. Two percent of uh, assets under management. So there's an incentive there to collect your two percent off of a bigger and bigger and bigger pile of money. If you can raise the next fund, you get more money yourself, regardless of whether you're delivering returns for your LPs. Yeah, and and I won't speak to any particular firms, but I I do think that's a perverse incentive system. And I think we should be working again. You know, we should succeed when our LPs succeed and our entrepreneurs succeed, and it should be aligned that way. And I think when the $25, $50 million funds were going together in the 1970s, 2% was fair because it kept the lights on and it paid a, you know, reasonable, but, but people were working for a profit for the carry. I think as Firms have stacked multiple funds and are charging management fee on that. Um, it's an unfortunate consequence that, you know, human behavior is human behavior. And, and it's there's nothing wrong with that. I do think the system is set up, could be set up better. Uh, but that's unlikely to change dramatically anytime soon. And I think the um, Diane Mulcahy wrote a terrific article on this. Um, we've met the enemy and he is us. And that's from the LP perspective. Um, that was but, for the Kauffman Foundation, I think about five years ago. Yeah, and Diane's terrific um, in a skeptical way. I mean, she's trying to fix problems because this is, I think, the critics of our industry, I, I embrace them, frankly, because I want to do better. And I think we should be doing better. And in venture capital, honestly, I think smaller funds, I prefer them. I think it's a better alignment of interests with um, the LP community and Scarcity of capital raises the bar for what we're going to invest in. Um, 
So I'd like to see, and I'd like to win with my LPs and win with my entrepreneurs. That's the most fun. Well, Bob, best of luck to you and your health and your family and your business and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Do better. I will do that. And a last plug, I'm admiring you for your effort on Everest. So everybody should be supporting Luke in his climb of Everest for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And that's, I, I think it's terrific that you're doing that. Thank you. All right. Thanks for being with me on the long run. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks to EBD Group and Presage Biosciences for sponsoring The Long Run. Next episode. Nikki Robinson is the Vice President of Business Development and Strategy at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. She works at the intersection between a leading academic research center and the people in industry who might be able to apply some of that research. This job provides her a glimpse into what's hot in many academic labs and also what's likely to attract interest of partners and financiers. As many listeners know, I'm on a charity fundraising campaign for the Fred Hutch through my Everest climb to fight cancer. Robinson can help shed some light on what Fred Hutch scientists are working on that stands a good chance of helping people with cancer. Don't miss this upcoming episode of The Long Run.